Well, good morning, church. That extra hour was pretty sweet, wasn't it? I think I'm going to do it again tonight. (laughs) Wait a minute. I I don't know how that's going to work out, really. We'll be looking at that passage in a moment that Destiny just read. But you know, there was this story, and I think it first appeared on uh, Paul Paul Harvey, if you remember him. Um, But this woman called up uh, the Butterball Turkey Company's consumer hotline, all right, and asked about the advisability of cooking a turkey that had been in the freezer for 23 years, 23 years. She wanted to know if it was safe to eat after being in her freezer for that length of time. Well, the customer service representative told her that it would be okay to eat if the freezer had maintained below zero temperature the entire time. The customer service representative went on to say, it's likely safe to eat, but even so, the flavor would have deteriorated so much, it wouldn't taste very good. It's not going to taste good. And the woman caller said, okay, that's what we thought. We'll just donate it to the church. Funny how that is, isn't it? We wouldn't, what wouldn't pass the test of acceptability for ourselves is good enough for someone else. To what degree has the evangelical church been shaped by the attitude of anything is good enough for God? You don't see it in scriptures. Old Testament, for example, it was Cain's sacrifice, you recall, that, that God called him out. It was the second best. There was other things going on there, but certainly that was at, at going on. Or the people of God, having returned from exile, it talks about it in the book of Haggai, uh, they prioritized their homes at the neglect of God's house. And God called them out on giving less than their best. In the time of Malachi, God called out his own people for their offering of the sick, the lame, the diseased, the second best animals to give him in worship. And God said, that's unacceptable. Well, in the New Testament, it wasn't the widow's amount that mattered as she dropped in two coins, but that she gave the Lord her best, all that she had to live on. Mary opened up an expensive jar of perfume and what seemed wasteful to some bystanders in the room. It was commended by our Lord Jesus Christ as she poured the perfume all over the Lord. And Scripture says she did what she could. She gave her best. Second Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that just as you excel in everything, in faith and knowledge and love, see you also excel in giving. Give your best. First Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Is that my attitude during the week? Is that your approach to, to what you do? I want to do this for the glory of God. And what area of your life right now is the Lord getting less than the best? Are we aiming too low? Have we slipped to the lowest common denominator in which anything is good enough for God? Have we become a, a part of that manageable mediocrity that often marks our movements? Are we serving without sacrifice? What does it really cost us to love others? 
Well, the direction for this morning is rather obvious. It's present a case for excellence. Excellence. The church is not the place to do the minimum required. It's surely not the place for mediocrity. It is the place for excellence. And when I say excellence, I'm not talking about perfectionism. That's something different. Perfectionism could be defined as as a compulsion often driven by fear or pride that fixates on something being done perfectly. And it's really about me. I want to look good. That's perfectionism. We're not talking about perfectionism. Pursuing excellence is different. It's being committed to doing something as well as possible within a given set of talent, resource, and time limits. Let me say that again. Pursuing excellence is being committed to doing something as well as possible within a given set of talent, resource, and time limits. In this case, we're doing it to honor the Lord. And that's why we pursue it. Jim Elliott's well-known words are fitting here. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. All right, with that, we turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to follow along with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we continue uh, in uh, a sermon series on vital signs. And as I noted last week, the tone uh, changed a bit as we came to chapter 4 from what we saw earlier in the first three chapters. Really, up until chapter 4, there hasn't been much by way of instructions. Well, the first three chapters invited us really to listen in on Paul and his companions' concern and care and pastoral concern and love for the church that they began in Thessalonica. And as we've seen, Paul was unable to personally visit the church, and so he sent Timothy off to Thessalonica to check in on them. And Timothy then returned to Corinth, that's probably where he's writing this letter from, uh, with a progress report of the church which received high marks in areas of faith and love. Their vital signs were good. And Paul commends them for that. But he also urges them to excellence. He doesn't want them to become stagnant or rest in the progress they have made. And so as we saw last week, and you can go there and look at it, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, do this, what? More and more. I mean, do you see it? It's a case for excellence. And go back a few verses into chapter 3 and verse 12. We looked at that, this a couple of um, uh, weeks ago. In Paul's prayer for the church, he says, May the Lord make your love, what? Increase, overflow for each other and for everyone else. He wants them to excel in love. And that's what we pick up today in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 that Destiny just read for us excelling in love. And we'll look at first the progression of love and then the expression of love. So we'll look at love's progression and then love's expression. All right, Paul begins, look with me, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, now, about brotherly love. And I just want to stop there for a minute. 
It seems rather apparent that uh, Paul has certain areas that he wants to speak to them uh, about. And likely, Timothy shared with Paul when he came back some gaps in their understanding of biblical truth, uh, probably shared with them, uh, with him, uh, some uh, deficiencies in certain areas uh, of practical holiness. And that's why, as we saw previously, Paul wanted to see them again. Why? To supply what was lacking in their faith. And since he wasn't sure he'd see them again to fill in those gaps, he writes them down this letter to them. Now, some commentators, some commentators went as far as to say that Timothy might have returned from Thessalonica with a letter from that church with some questions written down for Paul to answer. And that what we have in chapters 4 and 5 are Paul's responses to those questions. That's possible. I would say very possible. And one of the questions they had was about this matter of love within the church. Perhaps there were some in the church who weren't playing nice. Perhaps there's some friction going on. They say, hey, can you tell us about love? What do we do with these individuals? So he says, verse 9, and answering that question about some difficult people in the church. Now about brotherly love that you asked me? We don't need to write to you, for yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Now the word Paul uses for love here is as the NIV translates it, brotherly love. It was a term uh, most often used to speak uh, of love between actual siblings. And so the gist then is that this church and Thessalonica have formed a new family by virtue of being in Christ. Now we shouldn't think for a moment that this brotherly love that he mentioned is some lower form of love. That it, it falls uh, short of agape love that uh, does, Scripture does speak about that ought to characterize us as Christians. As a matter of fact, in the same verse later on, he uses agape love in reference to the love, agape love, that was taught them by God. But he didn't choose to use that word. He chose to use the word brotherly love, and it's very intentional. They had to live like a tight-knit family. And a fair assumption is that this issue of brotherly love is mentioned, and they're asking about it, because of a few in the church who are abusing this love, or at the very least, disrupting the health of the family. And we're going to see this in a moment. Because like any family, there are going to be some in that church who are just takers only. They're just taking. Stories told of an attorney who gathered the entire family for the reading of the will, and relatives came from near and far to see if they were included in the bequests. The lawyer somberly opened the will and he began to read. And he said, to my cousin Ed, I leave my ranch. To my brother Jim, I leave my money market accounts. He goes on, to my second cousin Fred, I leave my stocks. And then he says, and finally to my cousin George, who always sat around and never did anything but wanted to be remembered in my will, I leave my greeting. Hello, George. <laughs> That's all he's getting. That's it. So most families have their share of unusual characters, like Cousin George. 
And in the church in Thessalonica, like any church, they had some individuals who were not contributing, who were not doing their part. And we're going to see that as we work through this passage. Now, most of us in this room understand that the church is to function as a family. That's why he says, I don't need to write to you about that. You understand that concept. That means, of course, there's going to be conflict. But it also means there ought to be a dimension of, of warmth and tenderness and care and concern and loyalty to each other. But you know, family life does not happen automatically, and I mean the church. Every family member has to do his or her part. We have to make a conscious effort to regard one another in this room and in throughout our church as brothers and sisters in Christ and do when we can, and we ought to look for it, to show brotherly kindness to one another. This cannot be treated as something optional because it's essential for our health as a church, brotherly love. Now I ask, what difference would it make if we saw each other as connected to our one God, our Father? What difference would it make if we were to view each other through the lens of our union with our resurrected Lord Jesus? Think it would make a difference? Now, no one's off the hook here because we must continue to pursue excellence in this area. You might say, well, I am kind of think I'm doing a pretty good job. You're not off the hook. You have to pursue excellence. Look at uh, verse 10. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And everybody hearing this goes, whew. Then he goes, yeah, we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Excel. Matter of fact, the phrase, uh, do so more and more, is the one word, excel, in the original. And it means to overflow, to, to exist in full quantity, to, to be extraordinary. And so by way of application, it means we can never say, I've done enough, I've loved him enough. Do so more and more. Just when you think you can't love him or love her anymore, God says, do so more and more. Just when you may think, what more can I do? God invites you to ask, am I excelling in love? Progress in your love. Don't settle for the love that you have. Consider what else you might do to excel in it. Maybe a personal situation for you right now, or maybe just in general as it relates to the church. Back in the 80s, uh, Hewlett Packard uh, ran an ad campaign asking the question, what if? What if? And what they wanted to communicate to the public is that they were always looking for ways to improve on what they were doing. Good enough wasn't in their vocabulary. And just when they might have said, this is a good product, what if? And the wheels would turn and they'd try to do something better for however you think about Hewlett Packard. That's beside the point. What if? What if? When it comes to our love for others, what if we set our sights higher? What if we let that person off the hook for their wrong against us rather than keep holding it over them? What if? What if we showed someone how much we really cared about him or her by speaking truth into their life rather than watch them crash and burn? What if... What if, instead of writing that person off, 
we spent more time getting to know him. What if, instead of putting our labels on people, we try to look beyond our biases and move toward them in love? What if? What if? There's always room for improvement. As Michael Martin says, the nature of Christian love is such that it's always practiced, never mastered. Don't settle in your love. Progress. Don't go, I've got this. I'm good. I don't need to go. Don't stretch me anymore. There was a farmer who used to have this testimony, and whenever you get a chance, he'd share it. And he would, his, part of his testimony was, I'm not making much progress, but I am well-established. <laughs> I'm well-established. One day, his wagon got stuck in the mud. A church member came by who had never been comfortable with the farmer's testimony, the church member said, well, I see that you're not making much progress, but you must be happy because you're well-established. He's stuck in the mud. Listen, don't be stuck in the mud. Don't go, no, this is, this is, I'm staying right here. I don't need to be stretched. No, let's not get too settled in our love for others. We need to keep making progress. Work that out and how it's supposed to be in your life. Let's not only look at progression of love, let's look at expression expression of love, love's expression, as we come to verses 11 and 12. Now, if you're looking ahead a little bit, or you know what these verses say, or you're paying attention when they were read, it may seem as though Paul, in verses 11 and 12, uh, moves on to a different subject. And some preachers and and commentaries I read uh, treat verses 11 and 12 as a different topic than what we have just looked at of brotherly love. I would argue that verses 11 and 12 are very much connected to verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 on brotherly love are the hinge on which verses 11 and 12 turn. It isn't a new subject here in 11 and 12 about working as much as it's providing us with three practical expressions of love's progression. It provides us with three practical expressions of a growing love. Now, what we also see here in verses 11 and 12, there are three members found in any church. Okay, this is where you can't elbow, and you've got to just process it for yourself and go, oh, you know, I know what he's talking about. No, nope, I don't have anybody in mind. You've got to work it out. Three members found in any church. They're the fanatics, they're the nosy people, and they're the slackers. Fanatics, nosy people, and the slackers. All right, let's go to the positive side of this as he speaks to each one of those of three expressions of love found in verse 11. First one, it begins with the words, our first expression of love is make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, literally, it's, the wording is, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Okay. Or, get excited about being quiet. Or, strive earnestly to live quietly. Or, strive restlessly to be restful. <laughs> it's, it's a classic oxymoron. Because what seems to be happening, have been happening among a few in the church, was his excitement with the coming of Christ, which isn't wrong. Okay, that isn't wrong, but they kind of needed to settle down a bit. In the next section, Paul is going to speak of this matter of Christ's coming and some gap in their understanding of it, and we'll come back to this next week. But they had 
a healthy hope in Christ's second coming. But they were so preoccupied with it that they couldn't get on with the matters at hand in their daily life. This is why I call them fanatics. They were overemphasizing one doctrine. You've met those people. I've met those people. You're three seconds in meeting them and you hear, I am a Calvinist, five-point Calvinist. Who cares? Or I am pre-trib, pre-millennial, dispensationalist. Okay. Now, it isn't wrong to hold to your positions. Just settle down. Don't be overbearing and annoying because your views, you're pushing your views about one particular doctrine. Make your ambition lead a quiet life. There was a, a Christian brother in Portland when I was serving there, and, and you probably always get nervous when I reference other people from other churches. You're going, someday he's going to reference us. Well, I don't give names. There was a Christian brother in Portland, and he held to the belief that a, a believer could lose his salvation, that a believer could lose his salvation. I held and continue to hold to the belief that a true believer cannot lose his salvation. He's eternally secure uh, in the love and grace of Christ who has begun a work in us, and he's capable of bringing that to completion because he's a faithful God. Now, I had hoped that I could fellowship with this brother and just agree to disagree on this one issue. He couldn't do it. Just about every time we saw each other, he'd give me another verse or reason to support his position. He'd call me during the week to engage in a discussion that I did not want to have. He'd send me articles and passages of scripture with long commentary on it by some teacher. I mean, he was relentless. He couldn't go on with anything else. Now, sadly, sadly, I could no longer fellowship with him. His preoccupation and obsession with this one teaching was not an expression of love at all. It drove a wedge in our relationship. Making your ambition to lead a quiet life that is an expression of love. It's free of hostility. It's not causing arguments. It's staying level-headed. It's giving yourselves to the ordinary tasks of every single day. It's leading a quiet life rather than trying to cram your beliefs down everyone else's throat. Lead a quiet life by not obsessing on one doctrine. Work that out. Second practical expression of excelling in love is captured in the next phrase, still in verse 11, the next phrase, to mind your own business or mind your own beeswax. Growing up, I'm not really sure what that means, but we used it. Well, in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians now, chapter 3, verse 11, Paul calls them busybodies. Busybodies. Nosy people. Busybodies. They're self-appointed experts who somehow think it's their responsibility to insert themselves into everybody else's life. Telling them how to raise their kids. Telling them how to carry on their ministry. Why they shouldn't take prescription drugs. And on and on it goes. A busybody usually has an opinion on everything. Oh. You send your kids to public school? 
None of your business. Don't say that to them. I'm saying it, okay? Unless you really know them well. Or the, the, the ones who like to ask that couple. So, when are you going to have kids of your own? None of your business. Oh, you work outside the home. None of your business. And why is it that the person who says it's none of my business, it's usually followed up with the word, but. I know it's none of my business, but. Listen. Busybody, nosiness, meddling. It's a form of sinful curiosity. And usually it leads to gossip. For you want to do something with that information, a meddler's uh, favorite hymn is, I love to tell the story. <laughs> I have one to tell. Stuck your nose in there. You see, nosy Nellie or Barney Fife with a gun and a badge who butts into everybody's business can cause a lot of damage and division in the church. Bessie Cooper of Monroe, Georgia, up until I think 10 years ago, was the world's oldest living person. On her 116th birthday, she received a plaque from Guinness World Records marking this milestone. She was then asked her secret to her longevity, and she said this, not eating junk food, and I mind my own business. (laughs) We might do ourselves some good, maybe not in the first one, but the second one, staying out of all the drama of other people's lives. Thank you, Facebook. (sighs) Maybe I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) But listen, it stunts your growth as a Christian. It does. Because the problem with a busybody is that you become so wrapped up in everyone else's business that you neglect your own. And you're constantly wondering about what you may be missing out about someone else. And not only are you wondering about it, you're spending your time trying to find out what's going on. Are you a busybody, meddler, nosy, busy with all kinds of things except the one thing necessary? Listen, get on with loving others. That will keep us busy. That will give us something to do. Mind our own business is an expression of love. And really, don't we have plenty of business in our own lives to attend to? You're going, Pastor, please move on from this. All right, I'm moving on, because now you might think I'm meddling. Third expression of love in the final phrase in verse 11, work with your own hands. Work with your own hands. In ancient culture, manual labor was looked down upon. It was for uh, the lower class of people. Paul not only elevates manual labor, after all, he was a tent maker himself, but he also is dignifying work here in general. And in this case, he's addressing the loafer, the slacker, the one who is idle. Now listen, hear me on this. He's not speaking to those who want to work, but are unable to work for one reason or another. And we need to be careful not to jump to conclusions or judge without knowing all the information, okay? So let me say that. I don't want to be misunderstood. But Paul here is addressing 
those who are unwilling to work or those who stopped working because they figured Jesus was coming. No sense working. He's coming. Right? We've had those in our day. Right? Go on your rooftop. I don't know why you always go higher up. Guess you get there quicker. I don't really know. But people would do that. Stop working, go up on your rooftop and just look for Jesus. Hold hands, sing Kumbaya. I don't know. Is that how we're supposed to do? The story is told that St. Francis of Assisi was hoeing in his garden when someone asked, if you knew Jesus was coming back this very hour, what would you be doing? And he said, I'd keep hoeing. And some in the church in Thessalonica stopped working because of their wrong understanding of the imminent return of the Lord. And Paul says, Work with your own hands. Stop being a leech. Stop being lazy. Pay your own bills. And it's unloving to expect the church or other people to take care of you. Excelling in love by not being overly dependent on the church. That's what he's saying. Now, listen to this as well. That is not to say there aren't times when we need some financial help from mothers. It's not saying that. Don't go to the extreme on this. Because that's how it's supposed to work in the church family. As we love each other. As we look out for each other. As we share with those in need. And we should excel in showing our love to others in this way. Okay? The issue here, though, is the one who mooches off of everyone else rather than work hard, and he's the one who's not working hard, and he has a sense of entitlement. It was a union representative. He was explaining the new work contract to the workers. I have great news. The company has agreed to lighten your work schedule. Hooray, all the workers, and the crowd shouted. And you'll have 50% pay raise. Again, the crowd of workers, hooray, this is great. We'll finish at 4 p.m., not 5 p.m., he said. And they all said, hooray. From now on, we will work only on Wednesdays. And the crowd yelled, every Wednesday? <laughs> they didn't want to work. Just make it easy for me. Just let me get the benefits of this. They felt entitled. Check this out. Do you have a sense of entitlement? Oh, that's what the church should do. That's what that person should do. Are you a taker only? An entitlement slacker causes hardship on the church, and it's a poor testimony to the unbelieving world. It discredits the gospel. That's what he says in the final verse in this section, verse 12. I'm going to hit this quickly, but here's the impact of excelling love. Verse 12, here's the impact. So that, purpose statement, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. Those who follow Jesus, if we are able, we should be among the first to work with our own hands. Listen, we ought to be considered one of the best workers. Oh, he's a Christian? I want to hire him. Not, oh, he's a Christian? Don't send him my way. Which one have you heard? Best workers. 
That means being dependable. That means being on time. That means giving our best. Not a slacker when it comes to work. Not using company time to preach. Love's expression will have an impact on the people in the Lakes region. It will have an impact on the people right here in Living Hope. So, lead a quiet life. Mind our own business. And learn to work with our own hands. Why? Because we're then in a position to show our love for each other in increasing measure. Now, these aren't the only ways, obviously, that love expresses itself. Scripture's filled with it. But let me just give the other side of this coin for a moment. To not care, to not show empathy, to remain uninvolved, to do nothing at all undermines the essence of love. You may say, I'm just going to have nothing to do with the church. That way I won't mess it up. I'm going to stay detached. No, 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 no. To do nothing at all undermines the essence of love. As the Luminers said in their song, Stubborn Love, it's better to feel pain than nothing at all. The opposite of love's indifference, so pay attention. Or someone said, the opposite of love's not hate, but indifference. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm just not going to care anymore. I'm going to stay uninvolved. That's not the right response for someone who wants to excel in love. Don't be indifferent. There was an interesting case that came before the courts in the state of Massachusetts back in the 1920s. Concerned a man who was walking along a pier when suddenly he tripped over a rope and he fell into the cold, deep waters of that ocean bay. He came up sputtering, screaming for help, and then he sank beneath the surface. For some reason, he was unable to swim or stay afloat. His friends heard his faint cries in the distance, but they were too far away to rescue him. However, however, with only a few yards away was a young man lounging on a deck chair, sunbathing. And not only could the sunbather hear the crying, crying man plead for help, come to find out he was also an excellent swimmer. But the tragedy is that he did nothing. He only turned his head to watch indifferently as the man finally sank and drowned. The family of the victim was so upset by that display of extreme indifference, they sued the sunbather. And with a measure of reluctance, the judge ruled that the man on the dock had no legal responsibility whatsoever to try and save the drowning man's life. Well, church, indifference may not be illegal, but it's certainly not the way of Christ in this love. Where might you need to get involved? How can you express your love to someone today? Is indifference taken over your heart and you need to pray against that? Is your love growing? It's mine. Do you excel in loving others? Let's pray. Lord God, though I didn't spend time on it, we must remember that in order to love, 
in this way and to excel in love. We need to bask in and remember and dwell on and embrace the love that you have for us. Your word is good. We love because you first loved us. And so help us to, to kind of linger there. Help us to just think on what that means to be loved by you. And then allow that to spill out over our lives in increasing measure to the people around us. Help us to work this out in a way that honors you for your glory and for your praise in Jesus' name. Amen.